This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. You ever just for two or three days in a row, just not because you're so busy, just because you just don't want to refuse to take a shower? I mean, I, mean I, I, I don't know if it's anybody else. I really don't. I have no idea. But when I go on vacation, the first at least 48 hours are shower free. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's just the fact I want to escape the routine. Of, I'm a two shower a day guy. All right, I, I cannot wake up without a shower. I just can't in the morning. And I typically take one in the evening as well. And, and when I go on vacation, sometimes even on the weekends, I just want to get out of that routine. And it'll sneak up on you. It'll sneak, you, you know, out of nowhere, you just all of a sudden, just, what, what is that smell? What is that smell? The house the house smells like Burger King right now. It smells like a hamburger that's been laid out for too long. Oh, no, that's me. I smell like Burger King. And I've noticed, I mean, really, if I go two or three days without a shower, I end up smelling like a hamburger. And that's gross. That's gross. Specifically, smells like a Burger King hamburger, which is why I no longer eat at Burger King, because if me not showering for two days lands me on a smell that reminds me of a restaurant, it's probably a good idea not to go there anymore. And the thing is that for many of us today, Your life and my life doesn't smell the way Jesus wants it to. I want to begin by looking at a passage of Scripture that comes out of 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. I'm going to read it to you out of the message translation. If you don't have uh, your Bible and it's not on your phone, you can follow along. We'll have the words on the screen Through us, he brings knowledge of Christ. Now, just from the get-go, we can tell that in this passage, as the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, what most scholars believe to be the fourth correspondence that he had with that city, we can tell that he is writing this portion to a group of believers He's saying that we, that through us, God is bringing knowledge of Christ so that everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent with life, but those on the way to destruction treat us more like a stench from a rotting corpse. This is a terrific responsibility. You see, the Apostle Paul tells all of us that we smell. You smell right now. 
Your life is giving off an odor. The people around you can smell it. The people that live with you can smell it. The people that you work with can smell your life. And the Apostle Paul tells us that as believers, as people who are following Jesus, that our life is supposed to smell good. But that there are many who have lives that stink. There are many who have lives that stink. So what gets us into a place where we're smelly? How do we get smelly in life? Well, the first way that we get smelly is because we make a decision to be smelly. We make that decision, we make it consciously. A few years ago, I was teaching, and it was Black History Month, and I was moving into a lesson on Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. And the lesson was really kind of designed to talk about prejudice and the way that we think about other people that are different than us. And I predicated the the speech by making this statement. That there are people in this world that will judge you simply by how you look. They won't get to know you. They won't get to know anything about you. They'll just look at you and make an assessment. And this little girl in the back of the glass, very sweet girl, blurted out, that's me. I do that. What she was saying is I'm smelly and I know it. I know that's me. And I want to be that way. I'm, I'm living that way. That's my way of going about things. But sometimes we get smelly because it's the second day without a shower. And Life creeps up on us. Life sneaks up on us. And we didn't know that we smelled. You see, long before we ever smell ourselves, the people around us smell us. Those of you that have worked with or have at home, middle school boys know that. All right? The learning to use deodorant when you're in middle school, phenomenal tool to give a young man, all right? But they they don't even know they're smelly, and they're smelly, all right? One of my jobs when I taught middle school was to have that talk with boys. You smell today. I don't know if you know that yet, but I'm here to tell you, I have deodorant for you if you would like to use it, all right? And sometimes that's, and really, that's what this series is about. This series is not about the things that we have consciously decided to do. It is about the stuff that we have no idea that's playing underneath the surface, that's ruining and wrecking our lives. Let's start out today with just kind of getting some things that I I, I want us just to accept from the get-go some foundational truths that we just need to accept as we begin this conversation. The first thing that we need to accept is that we cannot control most of what happens in life. We have literally zero control over most of what happens in our lives. 
there are going to be things that happen to you that you deserve. There are going to be things that happen to you that you don't deserve. There are going to be things that happen to you that you deserve. There are going to be things that happen to you that you don't deserve. And some of those things are going to be good. And some of those things are going to be bad. But we have very little control over what's happening in our lives. And it is a foundational truth for us in this conversation to begin with that. Because all that we can control, all that we have the capacity to really control is this. How we react to life when it happens immediately. How we react when, when life happens, when those things happen that we are, that, that is the good and the bad. The things that we deserve and the things that we don't deserve. When they have, we can control how we react to those immediately. And we can control how we let those events affect us in the long term. So here, this is the first thing you notice. This is a, a, just kind of an opening statement for us about attitudes. Our attitudes are foundational beliefs that formulate how we respond to life in our hearts. Our attitudes are foundational beliefs that formulate how we respond to life in our hearts. Most of our attitudes are really lying well beneath the surface. There, there's stuff that we don't, we don't even recognize that as being motivating for our actions. We don't even see how the attitude that is there is helping formulate how we respond to life when it happens. But it's important because the attitudes that we allow to resonate and take up ownership and camp in our hearts will decide how we live this life. Look at this verse, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because out of your heart, life is going to flow. So whatever is being owned in our hearts, whatever is foundational in our hearts, is going to set the template for what our life flows out. And... If we allow something to take up residence, if we accept an attitude and make a belief foundational in our hearts and let it take up residence in us, it will inevitably wreck the life that God wants to give us. Because it is going to constantly sabotage the life that Jesus is trying to pour out of our hearts as he works in us. So if we have a bad attitude, if we have the wrong precept, if we have the wrong foundation, if our heart is jacked up, everything that flows out of it is going to be jacked up too. 
And that's what, in this series, we're going to spend four weeks looking at attitudes that have wrecked lives. I'm going to be honest with you. When, when I began studying for this one this week, devastated, all right? I mean, like, this, this message has ravaged me, all right? Because if our attitudes affect how we respond to life, a bad attitude can have a drastic negative impact. And the thing is, is that we could be like that middle school boy. Completely stinky and not even know it. I mean, our lives right now to the people that are around us, even though we love Jesus and, I, and, and I'm, I'm, God, I'm, I'm trying to give you everything, our lives could stink and just be completely oblivious to it. So I want to go to a passage out of Genesis 25. And I'm, I'm going to read. It's going to be a, a longer passage for us to read. Uh, this is dealing with, with two brothers, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, they, they are uh, both in this hereditary line under Abraham. Uh, their family at this point is fairly affluent but after their birth, Esau being the firstborn, we find in this passage that there's a difference that has emerged between who Esau was and who Jacob was. Being the firstborn meant that he was uh, kind of owed what was called a birthright. All right? That meant that in the inheritance, in the family structure, in the wealth of the family, he got an extra portion. So if there were two sons, the property was divided in three ways, and he got two-thirds of the property, two-thirds of the wealth as the oldest son. And, and we find as we read through this that there is quite a bit of tension that has emerged between Jacob and Esau. And so let's just go ahead and go to the passage that we're going to look at. Genesis 25, verse 27 today. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Let's just stop there. All right, some of you guys go hunting. And then there's some guys that stay at home and help mom cook meals. That's the difference between these two men. Esau is, I, I mean, he, as the Bible describes him, he is a hairy, manly man. He is a hunter. He goes out and kills stuff. And we're going to read, because he kills stuff, his dad likes him because he brings meat home. But Jacob stays home. Jacob stays home and helps cook and clean and tend to the affairs of the home. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah, the mom, loved Jacob. So we see that there is a, a tension in the home between one parent having a favorite and the other one having a favorite. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. 
And we're talking at this point, birthright is representative of a third of the whole estate. He's saying, give me a third of the estate, and I'll give you this soup I've made. That sounds like a bad deal. Um, Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate it. And then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. There's a few things I want you to know about that moment. The first thing is that Esau's hungry. And it's not unnatural to be hungry. It's not sinful to be hungry. It's not wrong. As a matter of fact, most of us, right around 12 o'clock today, we're going to get hungry. And that's exactly where Esau was. He was hungry. But he made a decision in that moment. In the motivation of something that was not necessarily sinful to do something that as we sit back and watch it, he sold his birthright for a cup of soup. In that moment, Esau makes a momentary decision that has a lifetime of effect. He makes a decision in a moment that would have effects in his life for the rest of his lifetime. His inability to be content with what he had cost him what he could have had. His inability to be content with what he had cost him what he could have had. Look at this verse out of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, fine. Be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. In that verse, the Bible is telling us that even as a a ravished, starving man that Esau should have been content because he had the capacity to know Jesus in that moment. And Jesus says, even at one point, man doesn't live by bread alone. Even in the most basic need that a human could ever encounter, just eating food, I'm hungry. Esau was willing to trade that moment, that momentary satisfaction for a lifetime of difficulty. So today, let's look at how the attitude of being discontent is stinking up our lives. The first way that the attitude of being discontent, not being content with what God has given, is stinking up our lives, is that, number one, it leads us to living a life where we're living by comparison. We're living a life that is being led by comparison. We're looking at other people 
We're looking at other people that are our friends, that are our family, people that may do similar things to us. We're looking at them and saying, where are they? How big is their house? How big is their bank account? What kind of car are they driving? Who are their friends? How pretty is their spouse? How handsome is their husband. We're looking and saying, what do they have? What do they have? And the truth is, is that living a life that is perpetuated by comparison only leads to two things. It leads to pride or it leads to lust. It leads to pride in me saying, I've got it and they don't. Or it leads to lust in me saying, they have it and I want it. And living a life that is being lived through comparison, looking around, engaging where we are in the journey by gauging it against the people that we see will stink up our lives because it will not let us be content. The second way that the attitude of being discontent is stinking up our lives is that, is that it makes us unhappy and unsatisfied with what we have. It makes us, it leaves us unhappy and unsatisfied with what we have. That's why we'll do what Esau did. We'll look at someone and we'll look at our lives and we'll decide, you know, I'm not very happy with the car that I'm driving. I own it. I don't make a payment on it, but I'm not very happy with it. And so what I would like to do is I would like to get a car that's similar to my friend because I rode in that and it was so nice but my budget is already completely shot at home. So if I'm going to buy a new car and spend $250, $300 more a month, that means I'm going to have to work more to make that money. I'm going to have to put in a few more hours, and I can do that. I can work a little bit of overtime every week and make that money so that I can afford to get this new car. And it leads us to the third way that being dissatisfied, being discontent can stink up our lives is that you'll trade the best things for momentary things. You'll trade best things for momentary things. That's exactly what we see happen in the heart of Esau. He is willing to trade the best thing for something that only lasts a moment. Like, I've had some good soup before, but it was not worth the birthright that would be given to me. And Esau is willing to give that up just for a cup of soup. I want to read you a passage again out of Philippians. Keep coming back to this book with us because it, the theme of Philippians is joy. 
All throughout the, the, the book of Philippians, the Bible is constantly teaching us what, how we can be joyful in different circumstances. And it was written by a man who was in prison. The Apostle Paul was in a prison that was literally the size of two pieces of this stage. It was only four and a half feet tall. That meant he didn't get to stand up. He didn't go to the bathroom. He didn't leave that little thing. And in the middle of that imprisonment, he writes this letter to a church that he helped start. And he says this. If you think you're in a bad circumstance today, I mean, if you think that your life is so bad that you can't be content with it, understand that he was wrongly in prison. He didn't do anything to deserve to be. He was simply, literally being held for a year before he was ever put on trial, hoping that by holding him, they could shut him up. And so he says this in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want, and here it is, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I've learned the secret to be content. And it's not about me. It's not about my strength. It's not about my capacity to make something happen. It's about Jesus being able to take care of me. And that is the secret to being able to be content in every situation. So how do we adjust our attitude? If we find ourselves in that boat, if we find ourselves in that precept, in that way of thinking, that discontent mode, that everything around us just isn't good enough. I'm never happy with this. I'm never satisfied. How do we adjust the attitude. The first thing that I would say is that we need to allow our circumstances to be a gift from Jesus. Allow your circumstances to be a gift from Jesus. And some of you are saying right now, you don't understand my circumstances. How in the world could that be a gift? The greatest gift that you'll ever be given in life is Jesus himself. The greatest gift that you're ever going to receive is Jesus. And at times, you need to be reminded of that. And so God, by his grace and mercy, from time to time, will remind us that this life is fleeting and futile. And the things that we are willing to sacrifice everything for that are momentary, he will let us see that they're not worth it. 
And that is a gift. From time to time, people are going to wound you. If you live in community, if we live in intimate relationships with people the way that God designed life to actually work, people are going to do things that hurt you. And you want to know something? You will never understand what it means to forgive until you have to forgive yourself. You will never understand the cost of grace that is associated with what God has done for you through Jesus Christ as he forgives you freely. You will never understand it unless you forgive and give grace. That is a gift. Your circumstances are a gift. The second thing is to stop living by comparison and start following Jesus. Stop living by comparison and start following Jesus. Because when we live lives that are being propelled forward by simply comparing ourselves to other people, all we do is follow them. That's all we do. So I walk into your house and it looks just like your friend's house right down the street. Who are you following? You got a new car and it looks just like your best friend's car. Who are you following? When we live lives that are simply being lived by comparison, it keeps us, it shackles us from following Jesus. And it will trap you in a life that is broken and busted. And that's for good or for bad. Because some of the biggest stenches that have ever been given off come from pride in comparison to our, myself to somebody else and me thinking that I'm better than them. The truth is, is that the invitation of the gospel is to follow Jesus, not to compare ourselves to other people. The third thing is to be content in all things. Be content in all things. And I know that when I say that, that's one of those things that's just tough for folks. Really? Because you don't know what my spouse is doing at home. I'm supposed to just be content with that? I'm supposed, I know that I went to college. All right, listen, this is just a common one that we're going to hear in the marketplace. All the, I went to, I have a college degree. Do you know how much money I'm earning right now? I'm worth more money than I'm making. I'm 35 years old. I'm supposed to be at a different place in life. My house should be halfway paid off. Be content 
in all things. I want to take you back to a verse that we focused on during a series last year. This is just absolutely brilliant. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the young Timothy. And he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Godliness with contentment is not just okay. It's not just slight gain. It's not just a step forward. It is a marathon for it is great gain. When we can pursue godliness and be content in life, it is great gain. And here's why. The last thing, and I want to zero in on this. Because being content in all things is really doing this. It's accepting the invitation to trust Jesus and to live with joy. Being discontent will rob you of joy. Being discontent in your life will rob you of the joy that God wants to give you. The ability to enjoy where you are. Right now. Not where you're going to be, where you should be, but the ability to enjoy where you are right now. Because when we're discontent, ultimately what we're doing is saying, I don't trust you, Jesus. I don't, this is where my life is. I don't trust you. You haven't done good by me. But choosing to be content says, I trust you. I trust you. And in this moment, I can find joy simply because I trust you. I can enjoy this moment. I know this isn't the end of the journey. I know that I don't have to be satisfied, but I can be content with where I am. I know that you're taking me further on and I know that you've given me vision, but I can be content with where I am. I can be joyful in this moment. Even if it's difficult and trying, I can be joyful and enjoy the journey. Because if we're not, if we choose to be discontent, our lives will always give off an odor that says this is not enough. What you do, what I have, whoever you are, my friends, you're not enough. But when we choose to be content, when we choose to accept where God has put us, if we choose to say, God, what you have provided in my life is enough, God, I trust you, the joy that comes from that gives off the smell that Apostle Paul was describing in 2 Corinthians, that pleasing 
smell that attracts other people. And you know those people because they walk into rooms and you look at them and you think, how in the world are you this happy when all of that is going on? And we know that they trust Jesus and they love Jesus, but we recognize now that they've made a decision to be content with him. Let's pray. God, today, as we look to you, we recognize that for many of us today in the room, we would say that, God, we have not been content with you. We haven't been happy with what you've given and what you've brought into our lives. And ultimately, God, we recognize that that's just simply saying we don't trust you. And so right now, God, we just look to you. And we confess that that's sinful. We don't want that to be the attitude that is embedded and written in our heart. God, we want to be people who are content no matter what. God, we want to trust you and follow you. And whatever you bring into our lives, God, we, we just want to trust that that's what you have designed for us. And so, God, we look to you right now. Now, with nobody looking around, just everybody pausing for a moment, the invitation of Jesus is to follow him and to trust him. And as we follow him, Jesus says, I, I will provide everything that you need. The apostle Paul said, the, I learned the secret to being content is that I can do everything through Jesus. That's it. I'm only content because I can do it through him. There is absolutely no way to live a life that is completely content and trusting without having a relationship with him. Without that relationship, there's always going to be a discontent that's unhealthy and broken and it's going to sabotage your life. So today, if you would say, hey, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that wrecking my life. I want to be content in a relationship that is life-giving with Jesus. If that's you, you can do that right now. So today, if that's you and you say, hey, you know what? I'm tired of sabotaging my life because I'm not happy with Jesus. I've not chosen to follow him. If that's you and today you want to make that decision to follow him, to give your heart completely to him, to really go all in and to be content with him. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now? I'm not going to ask you to move or do anything else. Just raise your hand. There's many of us in the room today. Many of us that would say, I have totally blown it. I realize now that I've been living my life by comparison. That I've been living in a way that really hasn't trusted Jesus well. 
But I want to commit before Jesus and before my church family today. I just want to commit to trust Jesus and to endeavor to be content. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now? I see those hands. Let's pray. God, today we just look to you. And we thank you that by the gospel you have ransomed us from a life that God was sabotaged from the beginning. And so God, we look to you and we ask you to come and to change our hearts, to transform these attitudes that have embedded themselves into our hearts and God, to rescue us from being discontent. God, allow us by your grace to find contentment in you in difficult situations. God, that we could be like the Apostle Paul, that we could find that secret and knowing that we can do all things through you. So it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.